Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. A psalm of thanksgiving for God's justice. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all thy wonders. I will be glad and exalt in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before thee. For thou hast maintained my just cause. Thou dost sit on the throne, judging righteously. Thou hast rebuked the nations. Thou hast destroyed the wicked. Thou hast blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins. And thou hast uprooted the cities. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know thy name will put their trust in thee. For thou, O Lord, hast not forsaken those who seek thee. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare among the peoples his deeds. For he who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. Behold my affliction from those who hate me. Thou who dost lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all thy praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in thy salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made, and the net which they hid their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. In the work of his own hands, the wicked is snared. The wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. All the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before thee. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have made us the body of Christ. You have brought us together to worship you. So regardless of our circumstances... Enable us to do what pleases you. Especially in these turbulent times, which are your doings, help us to focus on you, not on warring factions. Help us to focus on your truth, not on falsehood. You have told us our battle is not against flesh and blood. The deceiver of the world is our enemy. 
And because of you and your strength, not ours, he is a defeated foe. You are in complete and total control. Regardless of what we think or see or experience, we are mere mortals. You are the everlasting, ever-living, all-powerful God. Our light, our direction, it comes from you, especially in times of darkness. Standing on your promises, we cannot fail. Listening every moment to the Spirit's call, resting in my Savior as my all in all, standing on the promises of God. Amen. Amen.
for the folks on the internet, that mellifluous voice that you just heard introducing this series is our own Christian Young. I appreciate that he took the time this week to come by and help me put together that introduction. And now the rest of you are all going to want to rush home (laughs) and listen to this message. Just the introduction. You're going to hear the introduction and go, well, I heard what I wanted to hear. (laughs) That'll be the end of it. This morning, as promised, we are going to begin a series teaching on the books of Ephesians and Colossians. We will likely take them in that order, but there is a reason for combining the two. Now, it turns out, I did a little research on the GCA archive. To me, I just taught through these books, but the reality is I taught through the book of Colossians starting on June 17, 2007. In my memory, that was yesterday, and then we followed it by going through the book of Ephesians, which we began November 11, 2007, and finished the teaching in 2008. And so even though I feel to some degree like I'm repeating myself, I realize that we've gained new people not only here in the building, but have also gained new people and new listeners out there on the internet. And it is really important to go through these books. This morning, I'm going to try to show you why it is important that we look at these two books. Because these two books do lay out the very fundamentals of what the Christian faith actually is. That makes them absolutely vital, and I'm out to prove to you this morning that it was Paul's intention that the book of Ephesians be transmitted from church to church to church to church. He wrote it as an encyclical. He expected it to be copied. He expected it to go around to all the churches. Now, the reason that's really, really important to keep in mind is because so much of the theology that is, especially in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, is theology that makes people uncomfortable. Even in the church world, people have difficulty with this theology. If you are not comfortable with the language of election or predestination or God choosing people since before the foundation of the world, then you're not going to be comfortable with the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. And that is why I am stressing that Paul expected this letter and the theology that it contains to be copied church to church and to travel church to church because he was laying out the fundamental theology that lays at the heart of what Christianity is really all about. Now, make no mistake, I say again the same thing I have said repeatedly, which is that the gospel is a simple thing. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Paul defines it that way. If you're preaching about the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, and then Christ raising from the dead and currently sitting at the right hand of God, if that is what you have preached to somebody, you have indeed preached the gospel. But Paul was not content to leave it there. He then went on to say, now there is all this, what he calls sound doctrine. 
the word sound in the Greek means healthy or whole whole and healthy doctrine don't be afraid of the word doctrine it just means teaching this is the teaching that lays at the very heart of what the church is this is the teaching that Paul expected the church at large to know this is the sound doctrine that explains what was going on in the gospel I'm going to repeat a phrase that I have used several times through the years it is not unique to me this is a phrase that I got from John Riesinger he once said election is not the gospel election is the guarantee of the gospel's effective success the reason that the gospel did accomplish what God set out for it to accomplish is because he also elected people to be saved by the work of the gospel the death burial and resurrection of Christ actually accomplished everything that God wanted it to accomplish because he also sovereignly elected people who would be saved by the work that Christ did he did not send Christ to the planet to die in the hope that maybe somebody would get saved the effectiveness of the gospel is based in God's electing grace Ephesians 1 right at the very beginning of Ephesians 1 the first two verses say Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus and the very next words are by the will of God that word in the Greek can be translated as by or through it is the power of God the determination of God the will of God the sovereignty of God that resulted in Paul being an apostle and so Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus because God willed it which is why Paul's testimony is so important about the fact that he was out killing Christians standing against the uh, Christianity that was growing in Jerusalem and the surrounding environs he had a writ from the masters of the temple that allowed him to go out and find and bind and bring back to Jerusalem anybody who was of the way which was a nickname for Christianity so that he could bring them back and torture and kill them for their profession of Christ and then Christ met him on the road on his way to Damascus the bright light came down from heaven knocked him down said Saul Saul why are you persecuting me Jesus took it very personally why are you persecuting me when in fact he was just persecuting the people of Christ I like that relationship that we are so one with Christ that any persecution against his people or his church is in fact a persecution against him and he holds people accountable for that persecution why are you persecuting me now that was the interruption in Saul's life that changed him entirely that caused him not only to be imprisoned but also to write these epistles that we're going to read it was always God's determination that Saul a Greek speaking well-educated Jewish guy would be the perfect person to write the epistles that include the theology that lays at the very heart of Christianity that is the reason these epistles exist 
And it's the reason that Paul could say, without question, the reason I am an apostle is because God willed it. There's no other reason for it. There's no other explanation for it. I was reading the scripture and I didn't get it. Paul says that all those things uh, concerning the Jews, concerning the law, he says I was blameless. He was a Pharisee. So it was not up to him. It was not his will. It was not his choice that caused him to be not only a Christian, but an apostle to the church and to the Gentiles, quite specifically. It wasn't his will. It was the determination and the will of God that resulted in him being an apostle. So when he sits down to write the theology of salvation, is he going to write the theology of free will? No, because that's not his experience. That's not what he underwent. He underwent the sovereign will of God interrupting his life and changing him. So when he sits down to write about how people are saved, he writes from God's perspective and says that it is God who does the choosing and does the electing and that he predetermined that before the foundation of the world. And that, to put a fine point on it, is the theology that he wanted all churches to know. And that's why the book of Ephesians exists. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's the first place where this starts to get interesting. The words at Ephesus don't exist in several of the most important early manuscripts. Instead, what it seems to be saying is to the saints who are faithful. To the saints who are the faithful in Christ Jesus. Because, as I said, this is meant to be an encyclical. It is meant to go from church to church to church to church. It is delivered first to Ephesus and then from Ephesus out to the other churches. Now, when we start talking about geography, which we're going to in just a few minutes, it is most possible that the next church to receive this letter would have been the church at Laodicea. Hold on to that. Because when you get to the end of the book of Colossians, there, see, I began and the first verse of Ephesians, and now we're going to the last verse of Colossians. We can go through this study really fast. Colossians 4, starting at verse 12. I'm going to read the next four verses. Epaphras, who is one of you, and who is a servant of Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, so that you may stand mature and fully assured in the full will of God. For I testify about him that he goes to great pains for you and for those at Laodicea. Now, this is interesting. Paul is writing to Colossae, and yet he mentions that Epaphras also is praying for the church at Laodicea. Laodicea and Colossae are 120 miles apart from each other. They're very close in proximity. They both lay in what we would consider modern Turkey. But listen to Paul's instruction here. 
For I testify about him that he goes to great pains for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas send you greetings. Greet the brothers in Laodicea, as well as Nympha and the church that meets at her house. After this letter has been read among you, that's the Colossian letter, after this letter has been read among you, make sure that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. So there is an exchange of letters between Laodicea and Colossae. Some people speculate that we have lost that letter to the Laodiceans. I'm going to argue to you that is the book of Ephesians because it was meant to be an encyclical making its way through the churches. But wait, do you have any historical evidence that that might be true, Jim? Yes, I do, and thank you for asking because I wouldn't have brought it up otherwise. Let me introduce you to Marcion. Now, I know as soon as I say the name Marcion, those of you who are adept at church history will say, Marcion? Wasn't he a heretic? The answer is yes, he was deemed a heretic, but he is also an important historic figure in the development of the early church. He lived from 85 to 160 AD. He is a very, very early church father. Now, the thing that made him a heretic is that he preached that the God who sent Jesus into the world was a different, higher deity than the creator God of Judaism. So he considered himself to be just a follower of Paul the Apostle, whom he believed to be the only true apostle of Jesus Christ. And he separated the God of the Old Testament from Jesus in the New Testament and speculated that there was a higher, better deity than the God of Judaism in the Old Testament. And it was that higher, better God that sent Christ into the world. Okay, we would all, if we heard somebody say that, we would say, sorry, that's not biblical, that's heretical. And so sure enough, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, all denounced Marcion as a heretic. And he was excommunicated from the church around 144 there in Rome. So why do I even bring him up? Well, because Marcion was also the first of the church fathers to compile what we would know as a canon, a list of what he considered the authentic books of the Bible. But what he did was he listed the letter to the Laodiceans among Paul's authentic epistles. He called it the letter to the Laodiceans. And you know what book it was? The book of Ephesians. He considered the book of Ephesians, which again doesn't have the words at Ephesus in it. But when the Laodiceans received it, they would have received it from Ephesus. And so they would have referred to it as the letter that came from the Ephesians. But then the Laodiceans had that letter, and the Colossians were told, to exchange their letter for that letter. So they got that letter from the Laodiceans. Therefore, it was referred to as the letter from the Laodiceans. 
Does that make sense? Yep. And so my point again in any of this is to emphasize that it was Paul's intention from the beginning that this book that we refer to as the book of Ephesians, which is most likely the letter that came from the Laodiceans to Colossae, that letter is full of the theology that lays at the heart of Paul's sound doctrine. This is the stuff that he wants you to know. Now, what's also very interesting as evidence that Paul meant for this to be an encyclical letter is the fact that when you read Colossians or you read pretty much any other of Paul's epistles, he includes a lot of personal stuff. He includes say hi to and so and so says hi and this person is with me and that person left me. He includes a lot of personal stuff. You find none of that in the book of Ephesians. It's not there because it's not a letter to a particular person or a particular church. It's a letter of the theology of the church that is meant to be spread far and wide among the church. That is internal evidence within the book of Ephesians. You also have the historic evidence. Take a look at the map in the back of your Bible for a moment. You may recall that there are seven churches that are named at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Those seven churches are Ephesus. It starts at Ephesus. Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, if you are looking at the map, again, this is what we would consider modern-day Turkey. But if you're looking at your map, you'll notice that Ephesus is the trade city that sits on the Aegean Sea there. And then from Ephesus, there is a trade route that runs through the cities of Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. If you look just southeast of Laodicea, you'll find Colossae. It's right there. If the letter from Paul first comes to the church at Ephesus, the natural port city where it would first arrive, if it went clockwise through the churches, it would go starting from Smyrna, then to Pergamum, and then Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. But there's no reason to think that the letter traveled clockwise through those cities. If it traveled counterclockwise, the first city it would have hit is Laodicea. And then Colossae is told to get that letter from Laodicea. And so again, that's the geographical evidence. I've given you geographic evidence. I've given you historic evidence. I've given you internal evidence that this letter is meant to be an encyclical to the church and most likely Paul said to the church at Colossae to read this letter. Share your letter with the Laodiceans and then get the letter that the Laodiceans have and make sure that you read that as well. So let's review real quickly. The words in Ephesus are not in some very well-attested, very early manuscripts. Laodicea is mentioned in Marcion's list and in Colossians 4 as being a letter that Paul wanted to be read. There is a lack of any addressee 
and there's a lack of anything that would indicate that Paul had personal relationship with the people that he is sending the letter to, and yet Paul has tremendous relationship with people in Ephesus. So why, if he was writing only to the Ephesians, wouldn't he mention them? He does that in all his other letters. So let me demonstrate to you that Paul does know people in Ephesus. Turn to the book of Acts. We are going to start in Acts 18. Colossae, as you can already see from your maps, is a city in Asia Minor. As I mentioned before, it's about 120 miles from Ephesus. And it does have a Gentile church in it that was founded by Paul's friend Epaphras, who he mentions. Paul himself, though, has never been to Colossae. So most of the believers there have never seen his face. You can read about that in Colossians 2.1. The author also then sends greetings to the brothers in Laodicea, which is a sister church in the neighboring town, and to Nympha and to the church that is in her house. And that's why he would expect that there would be this transmission of letters between the two. He knew that he didn't have to write all that same stuff to each of them. Instead, he knew that he could write it once and they would share it. Ephesus is the largest city and the political capital of Asia Minor. And it's also best known because it's the location of an enormous temple to the goddess Artemis, who is sometimes known as Diana, who in more recent days is known as Wonder Woman. Yeah, so Diana. Now, Artemis, the Greek goddess, is the goddess of wild animals. She's the goddess of the hunt. She's the goddess of vegetation and chastity and childbirth. I don't know how those two go together. She's the daughter of Zeus, and she is the twin sister of Apollo, for those of you who are trying to get your Greek and Roman mythology together. She's usually depicted, if you look her up on the internet and you see any wood carvings or statues of her, she's always with a deer, usually a fawn, but she's also got a packet of arrows on her back because she is the goddess of hunting and wild animals. So in many ways, Ephesus is like Athens, the same way that Athens has Athena as their patron goddess. Same deal in Ephesus. They have their own patron goddess, and it is this Diana. So this is a culture that is steeped in idol worship. And yet Paul is willing to inject Christianity into it. There is a church that gathers there in Ephesus. I just imagine that that had to be a very, very difficult place to exist as a church. And yet, as I said earlier, persecution seems to be the fertilizer on which the church grows. The more persecution, the more the church grows. So Paul and his associates actually spent several years in Ephesus, and we're going to read about it. We're going to read a fairly large section 
of the book of Acts here so that you can see that Paul actually did know people in Ephesus. And yet, if this letter was meant to be just to the Ephesians, he would have mentioned some of these people or some of this history or some of the church there. And he doesn't mention it at all. You can read the book of Ephesians and you won't find any of that familiarity that is so prominent in his other letters. Again, why? Because that's the internal evidence that Paul expected everybody to read this letter because it is foundational to what Christianity is. And why am I stressing that point so much? Because so many people do not like the language of the book of Ephesians. I'm going to tell you a quick Elder Ward story. I think I probably told this story back in 2007 when we were teaching through Ephesians, but I'm going to tell it to you again because it's a good story to tell once every 13 years. He was meeting with several other Baptist pastors there in Lexington. Somebody was accusing him of being too predestinarian. You believe all that election stuff, don't you? And so he asked them, what do you do with the first chapter of the book of Ephesians? One particular pastor responded and said, I tear it out of every Bible I own. An elder said, good, because that means you knew it was in there. It's really important that you remember that the book of Ephesians includes the predestinary electing grace of God. That is how people get saved. And even though the church at large in the world right now doesn't like that theology, it is the very theology that Paul wrote and expected to have circulate through all the churches. You getting a feel for my argument yet? Mm -hmm. All right. The people on the internet couldn't hear your heads rattle as you nodded, but, but we will assume that there was unanimous agreement. Okay, so Acts 18, I'm going to start reading at verse 19. They came to Ephesus, and he left them there. We're talking about Paul here. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews, and when they asked him to stay a little longer, he did not consent, but taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills. So he set sail from Ephesus, and when he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down into Antioch. Verse 23, and having spent some time there, he departed and passed successively through the Galatian region and through Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, An eloquent man came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, They took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. 
And when he had arrived, he helped greatly those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And it came about that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And there were in all about 12 men. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months. That's in Ephesus. Reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the multitude, he withdrew from them and took the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of God, both Jews and Greeks. And God was performing extraordinary miracles at the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists, who went from place to place, attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits. They attempted to name over them the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you, By Jesus, whom Paul preaches, and seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them and subdued them all and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to everybody, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ was magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of all. And they counted up the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Now after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, I also must go to Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. 
And about that time there arose no small disturbance concerning the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who had silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And not only is there danger that this trade of ours is going to fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship should even be dethroned from her magnificence. And when they heard this, they were filled with rage, and they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. And also some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then some were shouting one thing and some were shouting another, for the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not know for what cause they had all come together. And some of the crowd concluded that it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward, and having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. And when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted out for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. After quieting the multitude, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there, after all, who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and the image which fell down from heaven? Since then, these are undeniable facts. You ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. Yeah, they actually believed that the statue of Artemis came down out of heaven. It wasn't made with men's hands. They even said these are indisputable facts. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. And if they want anything beyond this, it will be settled in a lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's affair, since there is no real cause for it. And in this connection, we shall be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. And after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. What's the point of my reading all of that? Well, to show you that Paul had a tremendous amount of interaction with people in Ephesus. And he doesn't mention any of it in his letter, supposedly to the Ephesians. It doesn't come up. 
He doesn't mention anybody by name. He doesn't mention the fact that he had to deal with these people who were determined to persecute Christianity and to drive Paul out of Ephesus. One more quick passage in chapter 20 there. Look down at verse 16. And you'll read, For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus in order that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, and he called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, and how I did not shrink from discharging to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. So the last thing he did as he left Asia was to gather the elders from Ephesus. So he clearly knows people in Ephesus. That's my whole point. Are you getting a feel for the fact that Paul knew people in Ephesus? Mm -hmm. And yet when he wrote this letter that we know as the letter to the Ephesians, He doesn't mention any of them. That, I argue, is internal evidence that this was not a letter specifically to the Ephesians. Those words, to the saints at Ephesus, don't exist in some of the earliest, best attested manuscripts. Paul wrote this letter because he expected it to be an encyclical that would go from church to church so that all the churches would be united in their theology. Now, 2,000 years later, this letter that is so deeply theological and doctrinal is divisive within the church. I'm going to be preaching a message the next several months that I would not be able to preach at several churches here in Smyrna. They would not stand for someone to read the book of Ephesus and exegete it and explain what Paul's words mean. So this letter that was meant to unite the church actually divides the church, but I think it divides the church in a good way. It sort of separates the wheat from the chaff. It separates the real Christian doctrine from so much fake Christian doctrine. So why then Ephesians and Colossians, beyond the fact that they are told to share letters with each other, These two epistles were both written and delivered at the same time to the same general area of the churches there in modern Turkey and delivered by the same individual. Paul describes himself in Ephesians 3.1 and Ephesians 4.1, Ephesians 6.20, Colossians 4.3. He describes himself as being in prison as he's writing both of these epistles. Ephesus and Colossae, as I've already demonstrated to you, are in fairly close proximity, which would make it easy for both of them 
to be delivered on the same trip. Both epistles designate Tychicus as the bearer of the epistle. And so you can read about that both in Ephesians 6, verses 21 and 22, and Colossians 4, 7. In both those places, you will see Paul refer to Tychicus. So if Paul's imprisonment that he's talking about is the same one that's referred to in Acts 28, then Tychicus would have delivered the epistles from Rome to those two churches, and if Paul did write these letters at the same time, it would explain why they are so very similar in content. You're going to see a lot of crossover between them, but interestingly, you're also going to see areas where Paul almost writes in shorthand between the two of them because he expects them to read them both. And so he doesn't cover the exact same material. Instead, he enlarges on the material that he's written in the other letter. So it's very interesting to study the two letters side by side. Let me give you a couple of those parallels. In both epistles, the audience is commended for their faith and their love. You read that in Ephesians 1.15. You read the same thing in Colossians 1, 4, and 8. Paul prayed for and wished that the two churches would grow in the knowledge of the Lord and receive spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's Ephesians 1.17 and Colossians 1, 9 and 10. Paul understood that it had to be a spiritual gift from God in order for anybody to understand the doctrine and the theology that he was laying out. He desired that they would both know the will of the Lord. That's Ephesians 5.17. That's Colossians 1.9. Paul mentioned the redemption that Christ provided, both in Ephesians 1.7 and Colossians 1.14. Early in both letters, he wants to establish that their salvation and their redemption is a result of the finished work of Christ, the blood of Christ. Both epistles designate the power of redemption for the forgiveness of sins. Christ is pictured as the head of the church, which is the body. That's Ephesians 1.22, and it's Colossians 1.18. So this parallel that Paul likes to draw between the church being a body and Christ being the head of that body, that's something he writes to both groups. The body, he says, consists of many members who are all under the authority of Jesus Christ, And then he says that the members actually function the same way that the human body does and that every part, every member of the body is necessary for there to be a whole and a healthy body. You read about that in Ephesians 4 and in Colossians 2. It's the same thing. Paul is just writing different aspects of the exact same thing. The body receives its instruction from the head but carries out that instruction through the joint working of every part. That's standard Pauline theology. Not only is Jesus the head of the church, but he is also above principalities and powers and rulers, the rulers of this world and the rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in high places, all powers, might, and thrones that ever were bow to Jesus ultimately. You read that in Ephesians 1.21. You read it in Colossians 1.16. He established right away that Jesus is above everyone and everything. There are no principalities, powers, or governments that are above Jesus. That, again, is thematic to what Paul writes. 
In the book of Colossians, he tells the reason why Jesus is above all the principalities and powers and everything. And it's because Jesus is the very creator and the very sustainer of everything. Jesus is the Lord of everything. So earlier I said to you that sometimes he compliments what he's written in the other letter because he expects them to read both. In one, he says, Jesus is above all the principalities and powers, all the spiritual wickedness in high places. He's above all that. But then in the Colossian letter, he explains why he's above all that. Because he is the creator of everything and the sustainer of everything. Paul also mentions, and this is important, that the law of Moses has been essentially terminated. Ephesians 2, 14 and 15, Colossians 2, 14 to 16, both say that the law is no longer binding on the conscience of those who are in Christ Jesus. A big emphasis in both epistles is the call to holiness, commanding the saints to cast off all their evil works of darkness. You're going to read that in Ephesians 4, 17 all the way to 5.13. You're going to read it in Colossians 3, 1 to 17. Large sections of both of these epistles are dedicated to the call for holiness. So again, fully orbed Christianity is both the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the theology that results from that, but it is also meant to change you. You are also then going to repent. You are going to turn from your previous works of darkness, and the call to holiness is part of what Paul considers essential doctrine. Paul contrasts their old life with their new life using the old man, new man analogy in both letters. He exhorts us to put off the old man and put on the new man to be renewed in our minds by true righteousness and true holiness according to Christ. And you're going to find that in Ephesians 3.16 and Ephesians 4.23 and 24 in Colossians 3.9 and 10. Are you getting a feel for the parallels between these two letters? They're very, very similar to each other. At some point this morning, we might actually reach the first part of the book of Ephesians, but I'm still introducing. And so part of the holiness that Paul describes in both letters involves forgiving each other. That is part of what it is to love each other in genuine holiness, to forgive one another, following the example of Christ's forgiveness of us. You find that in Ephesians 4.32. You find that in Colossians 3.13. And that type of forgiveness can only flow from that kind of spirit-induced love that we have for one another. That's Ephesians 5.2. That's Colossians 3.14. Paul spends time speaking about submission, proper submission in these letters, talking about how everybody has somebody who is over them, and rather than rebel against the fact that God has established this order, they are to humbly submit. But interestingly, even as Paul is talking about the necessity of Christian submission in order for there to be peace within the family and within the church, he also makes sure that the person who is being submitted to has authority on his head as well, so that there is nobody who doesn't have that sense of authority over them. And lastly, at the collusion, at the collusion, 
At the conclusion of both of these epistles, Paul requests prayer so that he's able to continue to preach the gospel of Christ, having read what we read out of the book of Acts and seeing the amount of persecution that he has suffered while he is there in Asia. You can see why he would ask those churches in Asia to pray for him so that he would have the boldness and the physical strength to continue preaching despite the persecution. We have to spend a little bit of time talking again about the indicative and the imperative. If you've been around me for any length of time, first off, I apologize. Um, If you've been around GCA for any length of time, you've heard me talk about the indicative and the imperative. The book of Ephesians, the entire book is based in the indicative and the imperative. So let's start by defining those terms And then I will show you how the book of Ephesians is laid out. Indicative, uh, that is indicating something. It is indicating who you are, what you're about, indicating. Imperative is a command, a directive. This is what you have to do. Most religion in the world starts with the imperatives. Most religion in the world says if you want to be part of our group and if you want to gain the benefits that our group advocates, then you have to do stuff. If you're adhering to Islam and you want, let's say, the 70 virgins, you want to reach the ultimate reward of what Islam is offering you, then you've got to get busy doing stuff. There's things you got to do. The quickest way to get there is killing infidels. But that's all based in do stuff. Too much of modern Christianity begins with do stuff. If you want to be part of our group, if you want to be part of the church, if you want to be saved, if you want to get heaven forever, then we got a list of things that you need to do. Get busy doing them. And then if you do them well enough, we will admit to you that you are probably going to receive the reward that we're offering. So they always put the imperative, what you do, ahead of the indicative, who you are. If you want to be a Christian, do the stuff. Do the stuff, then you'll be the Christian. So they put the imperative ahead of the indicative. Paul never does that. In all of his writing, never once does he ever start with the imperative in order to reach the indicative. Never happens. When I first came to understand that concept, it changed everything about me. It changed the way I parent. It changed the way I pastor this church. People used to come to me and say, you know, I'm in trouble, or my marriage is in trouble, or, you know, my job situation is in trouble, or, gee, I I just don't feel faithful enough, or I'm not doing enough, or I'm not. And the only thing I knew to say to them was, well, do better. (laughs) Get busy. (laughs) Do more stuff. Do more. And, of course, that never helped anybody, because if they could have done better, they would have. That's why they're there talking to me, because they've realized their inability to actually do any better. And so they come and confess it 
and say, I can't, I can't do it. I can't do it anymore. Okay, so then I understood the indicative imperative, the way the Bible lays it out, and the way that all Pauline theology, and indeed all of New Testament theology, is laid out. It starts with the indicative. Here's what I mean. It starts by saying who you are. It starts by saying you are beloved by God. You are chosen by God since before the foundation of the world. You have been blood-bought, and you are not your own. You belong to a master. You belong to a Lord. That's who you are. Now, knowing who you are, be like this. And you know what? That works. Once people understand who they are, now they have a genuine inspiration to do better. Oh, I'm not the world. Oh, I am a child of God. Oh, he has ever loved me. Oh, he wrote my name down in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. Oh, he chose me from the mass of humanity, and out of his great love and grace, he sacrificed his son for me, and so he expects me to live differently? Okay. I'm okay with that. I can do that. So when I used to say to people, do better. They had no grounds on which to do better. They had no inspiration to do any better because they couldn't find it within themselves to do better. The doing better in this life isn't in you. You don't have the ability. You don't have the capability to do better. You're doing the best you can do right now and you're pretty lousy. I'm glad you laughed. You, you got to admit, compared to God, you're not that great. You're sinning on a regular basis. You're still rebellious. You're still feeding your flesh everything your flesh desires. You're still in the battle. You haven't achieved perfect righteousness, perfect holiness yet. It's not in you. You don't have the ability to do it by yourself. But when you read the New Testament writers and they tell you that you have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling you, and that spirit is indeed holy, that becomes the inspiration to resign yourself, take sides with God against yourself, and resign yourself to the holiness of the spirit that is within you, and therefore you find yourself quite naturally doing better. By the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God, you will quite naturally achieve the things that the law commanded of you, but the law commanded it of you in and of yourself without the Spirit of God. And therefore, nobody ever did it because you can't do it. But once the Spirit of God takes up habitation in you, you will most willingly do the things that the law couldn't make you do Amen. because you're too rebellious. You know from the time you were born that every time somebody said to you, don't do that, the first thing you had to do was whatever they said, don't do. Because rebellion beats in the heart of a child. And it doesn't get any better as you grow older. Rebellion beats in the heart of human beings. And when anybody, including God, says, do something, your natural instinct is to say, no, I'm independent. I do whatever I want to do, and don't you tell me what to do. 
And then God takes up habitation inside you. And you find yourself most naturally and most willingly. The Bible even says it. In the day of your power, your people are willing. So that is the indicative and the imperative in a, in a nutshell. Biblical theology starts with, who are you? If you are the blood-bought beloved of God, then we can say to you, well, if that's true of you, be like this. And that's what Paul did. And the book of Ephesians is three chapters of theology that is God loved you forever. God loved you since before the foundation of the world. God chose you. God wrote your name down. God, by his grace, 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 and only grace, and not because of anything in you, because you're a worthless sinner who's incapable of doing anything that would impress or please God. God, by his overwhelming and astounding everlasting grace, decided to choose you and bring you to himself. That's the theology that he lays out in the first three chapters. The next three chapters, he says, now be like this. The last three chapters are how you act. And it's the call to holiness. And it's the call to better behavior. If I start with, and I grew up in the church that did this, but if I start with you all by saying, do stuff. And I give you a list of what I require of you. And I give you a list of what our denomination demands of you. And I give you, by the way, we're not a denomination. But we give you a list anyway. And we say, if you want to be part of our group, you got to do all this stuff. Every time you walk through the front door here, you will put on an air like you're doing that stuff. So that everybody else in the room accepts you as one of them. And you're all lying your faces off to each other. And you're all being hypocrites because you're all pretending that you're doing what you're just not doing. But if it starts with you are the blood bought, you are inhabited by the Holy Spirit, you are the beloved of God, then we can read the last three chapters of the book of Ephesians that talks about your behavior. And then I can leave it between you and God. I don't have to stand up here and be your judge. I don't have to stand up here and start fruit examining and seeing whether you're living up. It's between you and God. I'm going to tell you what the word of God says. I'm going to tell you what the expectation is of your behavior. I'm going to tell you what Paul wrote. If you're a Christian and you're blood-bought, this is the way you're supposed to behave. But that is not legalism. That is the natural response to having been blood-bought, having been elected since before the foundation of the world. And in that context, I can expect that behavior out of you. Because in Ephesians 4, Paul starts listing the way the Ephesians were. The church in Ephesus was full of people who, like we just saw, were the kind of people who would shout things like, Artemis is great. And they would believe lies like her statue came down out of heaven and these are facts and you can't deny them. And he lists what they used to be like. And then he writes, and such were some of you. But you've been changed. But you've been redeemed. But you've been washed by the blood. So Paul expects, as part of his theology, he expects that the theology is not just doctrinal, the theology is life-changing, life-altering, behavior-changing. He expects that if you really understand the theology of Christianity, 
It will affect you, affect your life, affect your behavior, affect your thinking, affect your emotions, affect your confidence, affect the way you interact with other people, affect the way that you forgive people, the way that you love people. It's not just cold, hard doctrine. Far too often we are accused of being just the frozen chosen, that we're just the people who believe in doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. No, the good doctrine, the sound doctrine leads to sound behavior. The right doctrine, rightly taught, rightly understood, leads to Christian behavior. And so that's what the book of Ephesians is about. And you can see now why I say this is an encyclical to the church at large because Paul wants you to understand not only this doctrine, but what Christian behavior looks like. Understand it? Well, then next week, we'll start at Ephesians 1. (laughs) That was indeed all introduction. Now, since there are no songs that go, doctrine, 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 we love doctrine. Come on down, hear some doctrine. There are are no church songs that do that. So instead, we're going to sing... The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ the Lord. That is number 186. Grab your hymnal.
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. We invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.